I'm a little nervous. What about you? <laughs> Hit rewind, click delete, stand face to face with the younger me. All of the mistakes, all of the heartbreak. Here's what I'd do differently. Those are the opening lines of this song by the band for King and Country. They want to go back. They want to do life again. They want to do it better. And here's what they do. They'd love like I'm not scared, give when it's not fair, live life for another, take time for a brother, fight for the weak ones, speak out for freedom, find faith in the battle, stand tall and above it all, fix my eyes on you. That's a great song. I love the encouragement to do more and be better. The truth is, we can't go back. We can't hit delete and click rewind but we can decide to be better going forward. And it all starts with fixing our eyes on Him. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who do you have your eyes fixed on? When I was in second grade, I had a teacher named Miss Wiley. She was one of my most uh, favorite teachers of all time. How many of you have ever met Miss Wiley? There's some of you. She's great. And at the end of my second grade year, uh, we were going to go on a field trip. We were going to go to a local park and have a picnic, and she talked to some of the moms, and so three or four days before the year ended, uh, we went on this field trip, and it was great. I was at a park, I was out of school, I wasn't eating school food, I was hanging out with my friends, and we started throwing the frisbee around. And you know, when you first start throwing the frisbee, it kind of goes wild and crazy, but then you concentrate a little bit more, and, and really trying to get it in there, and so as we started, started throwing this frisbee, I was going after this frisbee like Ozzie Smith would go after a ground ball. And so finally, one time, this Frisbee comes, and, and it's coming this way, and I'm running, and I've got my eyes locked on it. I'm going, and just when I get about right here, I'm going to grab it. I come to a sudden stop. Out of my peripheral vision, I did not see the oak tree I just hit. <laughs> now, just in case you're wondering, when a human being takes on an oak tree, the oak tree wins. Don't go home and try this at home. And... Uh, because I was extended like this, the whole side of my right face and head just hit the oak tree and I went back. I wasn't knocked out, but I know some of you are thinking now, oh, you had a head injury as a small boy. That explains a lot today. <laughs> and so I, I knew it was bad because when I was on the ground, the other kids ran around there like, ooh, ooh. Have you ever been watching those videos where people are trying to do tricks on their bike, normally it's some teenage boy? And they land the wrong way, and they try to land on their leg, and it can't take the weight, and like the shin just snaps and goes sideways. It's like, yeah, I, I, whenever I stop, ooh, I have to turn it off. I can't watch that. It's not right that your leg is perpendicular to the rest of your body. And so I, I knew it was something like that, and uh, they took me to the nurse's office at school. And back in the 70s, they had this uh, antiseptic to clean out cuts and wounds that seemed to be like pinkish or yellowish and it burned your face, and it would like leave a mark. People knew you'd been to the doctor because you had this stuff all over your face. And the nurse is really nice, but she, she pours the antiseptic on that cotton swab, and she starts rubbing on my face really hard. I'm like, well, first of all, my face is in pain because I hit a tree. And second of all, I'd like some skin left when you're done. My eyes were so focused on the small thing, the frisbee, that I missed the big thing, the oak tree. And isn't that a snapshot of our lives for so many of us? Our eyes are fixed on one thing so much that we miss the big picture. Maybe your eyes are so focused on your work that you're missing the impact it's having on your family because you're gone so much. Maybe your eyes are so focused on yourself that you can't see or don't know the struggles your spouse or children are going through. 
Or maybe your eyes are so fixed on past hurts that you can't see God's blessing in your life. Well, we can't go back and step back. We can't take a step back and see the big picture. God wants us to step back and fix our eyes on Jesus. Here's what it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Notice that this is a race. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong journey. And the goal is to keep our eyes on him throughout it all. Three weeks ago, we began a series called Netflixmas. We started with Christmas vacation, talking about the stress of Christmas. And two weeks ago, we looked at a Christmas story and getting the perfect gift. And today we conclude by looking at It's a Wonderful Life. How many have ever seen this movie? I'm always surprised when I meet some people that don't. I love this movie. I watched it again last night. It's tagged as one of the most loved Christmas films of all time, and I totally agree. I remember as a teenager first seeing the film. I was flipping through the channels, nothing was on. 20 plus years later, we have 200 plus channels and there's still nothing on. And I'm flipping through and I come across this black and white movie. And as a teenager, I don't know any better, so I'm thinking, can there be any good black and white movies? There's a lot of great black and white movies. The real question is, are there any good movies in color these days? And so I, I caught this movie from the beginning and it really starts out interesting. There's all these prayers that are being offered up from people in this small town, Bedford Falls, and they're praying for George Bailey. You don't really know why yet. And then the next scene, is out, they're out in space, and these angels are talking, and there's the angel Clarence, second-class angel. He doesn't have his wings yet. He's a guardian angel for George, and, and they do a, a flashback for Clarence of George's life so he knows what's going on so he can help him. And one of the opening scenes there is, you see George is a teenage boy, and he's out on a pond with his friends, and they're sliding, and, and his brother, uh, younger brother Harry, he uh, slides on the, the pond in the wintertime, but he breaks through the ice, and George jumps in to save him. And he gets a really bad cold in saving him, and he loses hearing in his left ear. And, and then there's another scene as a young boy where he, uh, he works in the pharmacy, and he, he helps uh, you know, serve ice cream and things like that. And he wants to talk to his dad, and, and he goes to the building alone and wants to see Peter Bailey. And you see Mr. Potter and Peter Bailey in this heated discussion. You remember Mr. Potter, don't you? Old, crusty, cranky, curmudgeon Mr. Potter. I didn't like him from the beginning. I never have liked him. And he's a wealthy businessman that wants to, to own everything and have everything. And even at a young age, George Bailey would get the National Geographic and he would look at where he wants to go and where he wants to explore. You see, George Bailey had his eyes fixed on different things throughout the movie, but there's a spiritual element in where God is drawing George to fix his eyes on the Father and be about his work. There are many great scenes, but I want to focus on four. Four scenes where George Bailey had his eyes fixed on the future, the fears, the finances, and the failures. And in each critical moment, the Father is working to help guide his path. We too have those same challenges, don't we? We wonder about our future, our fears, our finances, and our failures, and yet God will remind us today to fix our eyes on him. In one of the early scenes of the movie, George has his eyes fixed on the future. 
He walks into a store. He's in his mid-20s. Actually, he's about 21 in this scene. And he's going to get a big suitcase. Because that summer, he's going to travel to Europe. And every city he goes, he's going to get a sticker and, and put it on this big suitcase. Let everybody know where he's been. And that fall, he's going to go to college. His younger brother, Harry, is going to help his father at the old building and loan. But George is going to leave the small town. He's going to get out of Bedford Falls. He's going to go make something of himself. And eventually, he wants to become an architect and build skyscrapers. He's got his future planned out. And you might ask, what's wrong with planning for the future? There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. As long as God is in the middle of it. Here's what it says in James. Some of you say today or tomorrow we will go to some city. Sounds like George Bailey. We will stay there a year, do business and make money. Listen, think about this. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is like a fog. You can see it for a short time, but then it goes away. So you should say, if the Lord wants, we will live and do this or that. George Bailey has his whole future in front of him. But he doesn't realize that his father will have a stroke that night and it will change everything. You know, when I talk to students about the future and about their hopes and aspirations and dreams, I tell them, take your dreams and your hopes and your aspirations and lay them before the Lord. In a symbolic sense, and say, God, is this what you want me to do? And if you sense a peace after you've prayed about it, that's God saying, pick these things back up. This is what I want you to do. But sometimes when we lay those things down, God says, we need to set that aside. I've got something different for you. That's where most of us get scared. We have our idea of the future, but God has a different idea sometimes of our future. For most Christians, the future is just two things. It's the far-off future. It's eventually we want to get to heaven. I'm right there with you. That's where we want to get. That's the goal. And then the other thing is, the future is, I'll, I'll be in church next Sunday. That's kind of it. It's just those two things. Outside of that, most Christians don't really want to include God too much in their future. But God wants to be involved a whole lot more. He wants to be involved in your future when it comes to your job, when it comes to your family, when it comes to your interests and your dreams and your desires. And at whatever stage you're, of life you're in, wherever you're wanting to go, he wants to be there. And so, George's father, Peter, passed away, and he gave up his trip to Europe that summer to take care of the building alone. And that fall, he was getting ready to go to college, and the board met to decide what to do with this building alone. And Mr. Potter was on the board. And Mr. Potter said, you know what we need to do with this building alone? We need to close it down. He wanted to close it down because it was a thorn in his side. It was the other business in town that helped people get into homes. Mr. Potter was into real estate development, and he built these slums, and he'd have people live in these slums, and Mr. Bailey would build nicer homes for people. Mr. Potter didn't like that. He didn't think these people deserved these loans. They were just the basic working class, the blue-collar class. He, he doubted them. And it really bothered George that Mr. Potter was saying these things about the townspeople. And so he steps up to Mr. Potter and basically tells him how it is. He says, we've got to keep this building alone, if only for the fact that we could stop Mr. Potter from doing what he wants to do to this town. He says, but you do what you want with this building alone. I'm out of here. He had his eyes fixed on the future. He's going to college and then become an architect. And he leaves the room. A little bit later, one of the board, boardsmen comes out and says, hey, they voted Mr. Potter down. They're going to keep the building and loan open. And, and George is really excited. And they said, but there's one stipulation. You have to stay 
and run the building alone. And right there in the movie, the scene pauses on his face because he knows. He knows the right thing to do, but he wants to leave. He doesn't want to do this. He's got his whole future in front of him. He wants to go and do his future, but God has a different plan for George Bailey's future. He doesn't realize it, but God's trying to pull him back in. And so George gives up the future of going to college. He sets aside his future, and he stays at the building alone. Let me ask you, are you willing to set your future aside so that God can work through you to impact other people's lives? Unfortunately, too many Christians say no. But I challenge you this morning to fix your eyes on the Father in the middle of your future and say yes to Him. And so life goes on for George Bailey. He runs the building alone and dates and eventually marries Mary Hatch, who's played by Donna Reed. I think she's beautiful, by the way. I just better let that out there. And okay, when I saw it, I said, she's a looker. I really thought Donna Reed was, she's a looker. I'm just saying it. I know, I know you're thinking it. At least the guys are, okay? And on the day of their wedding, as they're getting ready to leave for their honeymoon, George notices something strange is going on in town. And he asks the cab driver and finds out there's a run on the bank, midst of a depression. There has been a financial collapse, and people want to get their money out of the bank before it's too late. And they have their eyes fixed on fear. In fact, they're so fearful that the bank is afraid they're going to run out of money. They went to the building and loan and asked for them to pay pay their loan off. And so George's uncle took all the money out of the safe and, and paid as much as he could towards the loan. And then the uncle closed the building and loan. And there's all these people sitting outside the building and loan. There's other people running to the bank to get their money. And George goes in the building and loan and asks his uncle and he finds out what's going on. And the people walk in and they want their money now. He says, well, I don't have any money here. The money you've given me, we've invested in other people. The money you've given me has gone into building this person's house and that person's house. And they find out that Mr. Potter basically bails out the bank. He's paying 50 cents on the dollar and people are getting ready to leave and go over to the bank. And George stops and says, listen, if you go over there and this building alone shuts down, it'll get, it'll, what will happen is Mr. Potter will have everything he wants. He'll have every piece and part of our town. You can't let that happen. And there's his wife, Mary, with $2,000 cash that they're supposed to take on their honeymoon. He says, I'll tell you what, we'll loan you our own money so we don't have to go through this. And so he spends the whole day loaning people their money. These people had their eyes fixed on their fears, and that's what we do at times. We fix our eyes on fear. I was sharing a few weeks ago with my small group. So one of the things that I'm afraid of is cancer. I feel fine. I don't think I have cancer. I don't mean to alarm anyone, but my father passed away from cancer. Probably most of you in this room know a close family member or friend who's passed away from cancer. And certainly there are cancer survivors, and that's to be celebrated, but so many people haven't beaten cancer. It's a scary thing. And maybe it's not cancer for you. Maybe it's some other disease. These things seem so elusive, and maybe it's not a disease at all, but we live in a society of fear. You listen to the radio any amount of time, you're always having to buy something to protect yourself from something. You've got to have health insurance and car insurance and life insurance. There's nothing wrong with those things. You need to be wise, you need to be prudent, but now you've got to get LifeLock to protect your identity. You've got to get the, the home alarm to protect your house. You've got to get the app on your phone in case someone steals it so you can find your phone. 
You've got to buy emergency rations and build a bunker for the coming zombie apocalypse. By the way, just a side note, I love talking to people about what would they do during the zombie apocalypse. And most people are like, well, here's what I would do. I kind of laugh because if there really is a zombie apocalypse, then there's not going to be. But if there really is, we're all going to be zombies, okay? For those of you who watch Walking Dead, you Walking Dead fans, there's a few pockets of human civilization barely surviving and everybody else is a... Exactly. You're thinking, that's a real pick-me-up at the end of the year. Hey, I'm there for you. All joking aside, some of you emotionally live in fear. You're in a crouched, defensive position emotionally. Your mantra is, when's the other shoe going to drop? Something bad happens to you and something bad always happens to people. That's how life goes. But for you, when something bad happens, when's the other shoe going to drop? When we fix our eyes on fear, it paralyzes us from doing what God would call us to do. Our Father doesn't want us stuck in a constant state of fear and worry. This is what he says in Isaiah. Don't worry, I am with you. Notice here, we have to change our focus from our worry to him. Don't be afraid, I am God. I will make you strong and help you. I will support you with my right hand that brings victory. Let me encourage you this morning, instead of telling God how big your worry or your problem or your fear is, it's time to start telling your your worry, your problem, and your fear how big your God is. It's okay to acknowledge your concerns, but with God's help, keep them in proper perspective. Are you going to fix your eyes on your fears or God who is bigger than your fears? And so George and now Mary Bailey live life. They have four children. They keep working on improving their home and maintaining the old building and loan. World War II eventually comes along. And Mr. Potter realizes that George is an astute businessman. And he asks one of his assistants to check on the progress of the building and loan. And the assistant comes into Mr. Potter's office and says, Look, ten years ago, Bailey Park was just a few homes. But here we are ten years later, and look how many homes he's built. Mr. Bailey's really going somewhere, somewhere with this Bailey Park. And Mr. Potter's frustrated by that. And he says, hey, look, you can do what you want, but someday I'm going to be asking Mr. Bailey for a job. This keeps up. And so Mr. Potter's saying to himself, if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him, but with a twist on it. So he calls George Bailey into his office. And George is kind of wondering why he's there to see Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter offers him a cigar and... George starts smoking it. It's one of the best cigars he's ever had. And he he sits down in this chair. And Mr. Potter starts describing himself. And he starts describing George. He says, George, you're you're a hardworking businessman, but you probably bring home, what, $40 a week? You've got to remember, this was back in the 1940s. And George says, no, I bring home $45 a week. $45 a week over 52 weeks is a little over $2,300 a year. That's how much I bring home. Mr. Potter says, yeah, but you got to pay your bills, help take care of your mom. You don't have any kids yet. A couple kids come along, and that $45, that's gone. I notice that you're a great businessman. So I'll tell you what, George. I want to offer you a job. I want to pay you $20,000 a year. This is 10 times what he makes. To put it in perspective for us, imagine if you're making $30,000 a year, and the boss says, I want to pay you $300,000 a year. 
and he's shocked and the cigar drops out of his mouth and into his lap and he's, he's trying to put it out. George has his eyes fixed on finances. He's thinking, man, what could I get with $20,000? Mr. Potter's helping the process and long says, don't you want to buy your wife some really nice dresses? Don't you want to live in one of the nicest homes in town? You can take a couple business trips to New York, maybe a business trip to Europe. And George's thinking, yeah, I could do these things. And you might ask yourself, what's wrong with the finer things? And I'm right there with you. I ask the same questions. I think each of us has a different idea of what the nice life would look like. I'm guessing it would include some type of nice home with a two-car, three-car, however many car garage you want to have, a backyard, you know, two kids and a dog and a cat and a, a stable job and, and retirement and vacation. So what's wrong with the finer things of life? There's nothing wrong with the finer things of life. As long as God is in the middle of it. Is God in the middle of your finances? See, most people at church get nervous when a pastor talks about money. And here's why. Because you're under the false impression that it's your money. Hear me now. I'm not saying it's all my money. I'm not saying it's all the church's money. I'm not saying it's all the government's money. What I am saying is, it's all His money. Yes, you go to work and work hard. But who gave you the skills and abilities and talents? Who knit you together in your mother's womb so you could do what you do to get a paycheck? It was the Father. Who gives you the strength to get out of bed every day, to go to work? It's the Father. Who's the one that gives you the very breath that you take for granted? It's the Father. Every material blessing you have, everything, it comes from the Father, and we are called to be stewards of what He's given us. And some of us in this room are good stewards, and others are poor stewards. But too many of us don't see ourselves as stewards at all. When we talk about money, it's my money. It reminds me of the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings. When he's talking about the one ring, he says, it's my precious. That's how we talk about money. It's my money. God addresses this desire to fix our eyes on our finances. Here's what he says in Matthew 6. Don't worry and say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? That's what those people who don't know God are always thinking about. Let's pause there for a moment. That's what people who don't know God are always thinking about. Why as Christians do we behave so much like the world? Why do we do that? Always thinking about, what are we going to eat and drink and wear? Don't we know God? Shouldn't we be different when it comes to our money? Yet so many times we act like the world. Don't worry because your Father in Heaven knows that you need all these things. What you should want most is God's kingdom and doing what He wants you to do. Then He will give you all these other things you need. God had provided what George Bailey needed, but Mr. Potter offered more. And that was the trap. And it's the same trap for us. It's not about our needs, but our wants. George Bailey wanted the finer things in life, but it would cost him the business and be harmful to the townspeople. How many times have we hurt those closest to us, chasing after the wants, fixing our eyes on finances? I ask again, is God in the middle of your finances? Just something to think about today. George Bailey's getting ready to shake his hand And he realizes, I don't want to do this. 
George Bailey declines Mr. Potter's offer, and he keeps plugging along in life. And then comes the scene that changes the whole movie. It's the end of World War II. Of course, the United States is celebrating because the war is over. George's younger brother, Harry, went off to war. He was a, a pilot, and he came back as a hero. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He shot down some enemy planes before they sunk a couple transport ships that had troops on them. And so it's big news all over the town. And George is out handing out papers to people in town. Look at what my younger brother Harry did. And his uncle, who's absent-minded, is handing out papers as well. And, and he's going to the bank to deposit $8,000 for the building and loan. And he sees Mr. Potter at the bank, because Mr. Potter owns the bank now. And he's really rubbing it in his face. Mr. Potter, look at, look at George's younger brother Harry. Look at He's getting the Congressional Medal of Honor. Look at what the Bailey family has done. And inadvertently, he had the envelope with the deposits in it, and he puts it in the paper, doesn't realize it, and hands it to Mr. Potter. And then he goes to the window, and the bank teller says, where's the deposit? And panic ensues. The uncle can't find the money. And Mr. Potter, he opens up the paper, and he realizes the money's there. Does Mr. Potter go and help him? By no means. It's at this point in the movie that I want to jump in and punch Mr. Potter. You're thinking, that's not very Christ-like. No, it's not, okay? I didn't say it was Christ-like. I'm just telling you that's what I want to do. And he holds on to that money because this is his plan. He, he's going to destroy the building and loan. And so when George finds out, he goes to his uncle and says, we've got to find this money. And all day they walk everywhere he went, and, and the uncle just cannot remember where the money is. And George is now panicked. Without this money, the, the building alone closes. And it's starting to build on him. He gave up his future for this building and loan. He gave up his honeymoon for this building and loan. He gave up the great job that Mr. Potter was offering for this building and loan. And now it's going to close. In an act of desperation, he goes to Mr. Potter. He says, look, we, we've lost this money. Please, please loan it to me i will pay you back at whatever interest whatever bonus you want please help me out an old crusty cranky curmudgeon mr potter doesn't help him out in fact he says i'm going to call the police in that discussion george says i got this life insurance policy but it's only got 500 dollars equity in it but it was worth fifteen thousand dollars and mr potter says to him you're worth more dead than alive. It's a powerful statement in the movie. Sometimes we think those same things. Am I better off dead than alive? And George leaves Mr. Potter's office and he goes home. He yells at his wife and kids. He's just stressing out. He goes to the bar and he gets drunk. He gets in his car and he's going to drive down to the bridge. He's going to end it all. And we're in a place where failure overwhelms us. We're to call on him. Here's what it says. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Amen. And he's down there at the bridge. And he's getting ready to jump. And he's wondering, like we wonder, where is God in the middle of our failures? 
George Bailey had his, his eyes fixed on failure. We wonder, when we're going through failure, where's God in the middle of it? And this is what I love about God. As he's contemplating suicide, where is God? The angel Clarence jumps in the river. God's right in the middle of your failures. And George is, is snapped out of it, and he, he realizes he needs to help this guy in the river. You don't think our Lord and Savior Jesus understands about loss and suffering and pain and failure? Think about it. We celebrated his birth a few days ago, and, and there's always the nice, beautiful manger scene. He was born in a barn. If I asked a young couple in this church, hey, the next baby you have, it needs to be, he, he or she needs to be born in a barn. He'd be offended by that. But our Savior and Lord was born in a barn. The first five or six years of his life, he's on the run for his life. His family has to move down to Egypt. The last time we hear about Joseph is when Jesus is 12 years old. We never hear about Joseph, his earthly father again. Presumably he died and, and Jesus had to become the man of the house, maybe in his teenage years. At 30 years old, he starts with just the clothes on his back, his ministry. And at the end of his three and a half years, he doesn't even have those. As he's hanging on the cross, I know in the TV shows they put a loincloth on him, but he was up there naked. It's humiliating. His 12 disciples that he'd spent three and a half years with, 11 of them basically abandoned him. Only John stuck with him to the very end. Jesus doesn't know loss and pain and suffering and failure. He knows all of it. And when we're going through difficult times, when we're struggling, God's right there that we can cry out to him. In a room with this many people, certainly some have contemplated suicide. Others, maybe you've contemplated, I, I don't care about God or church. I'm just going to go live my life and do whatever I want. You get caught up in alcohol and drugs and sex and mindless entertainment or whatever. Sometimes you look at what you thought your life was going to be and what it is now, and you're like, man, it kind of looks like a failure along the way. Where's God in the middle of my failure? He's right there for you to call out to him, to cry out to him. And the underlying question that George is asking, the underlying question that we ask is, do I matter? He's sitting there in the little house on the bridge. It's him and the angel Clarence and the guy who runs the bridge. And as the conversation develops, he says, you know, it would have been better if I was never born. George looks at his life and he doesn't think it matters at all. And so his prayer is answered. And the rest of the movie, the angel shows George the town without him ever being born. And you find out that his younger brother Harry, who saved all these people, he didn't save those people because he died as a boy. George wasn't there to jump in the pond to save him. The town is now called Pottersville. And the whole spirit of the town has changed. It's got the spirit of Potter in it. It's about money and greed. It's ugly. And everywhere he goes, he sees these people impacted for the worse because George wasn't there. And finally at the end, he's at the bridge again and, and he begins to pray. He says, I, I want to go back. I want my wife back. I want my kids back. I want it all back. Whether I go to jail or not because of the lost money, I, I want it back. And, and his prayer is answered and he starts to run through the town. And it, it, it's like he remembered it, the sign. He used to say Pottersville, now it says Bedford Falls again. And he's excited and he runs home. And of course, there's the police officer. They're ready to arrest him. And he's hugging his wife and kids. And there's that scene at the end where all the people come in his living room. How many remember that scene? 
How many of you, you tear up a little bit, you get a little misty-eyed when you see that scene? Come on, be honest. Not me. No misty-eyed, no tears. I'm bawling. It's a full-on ball. Oh, that's so good. Oh. Yeah, that's me. Love it. The question you might ask today is, do I matter? And the answer is, you do matter. You matter most when instead of fixing your eyes on the future, you fix your eyes on the Father. Instead of fixing your eyes on your fears, you fix them on the Father. Instead of fixing them on your finances, you fix them on the Father. And instead of fixing them on failure, you fix them on the Father. Here's what it says again in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. At the very end of that movie, the people come in and they're bringing money. And George barely realizes that he did have an impact in this town. And it's just such a heartwarming scene. All those times when he thought he, he was losing out. He lost out on his future and, and the honeymoon and the great job. All the times he thought he was losing out. Actually, God was behind the scenes working to pull him back in because God had the big picture in mind. And maybe today you're sitting out there and you're thinking, Man, I've, I've had my eyes fixed on some of these things. And it's really been overwhelming me. In a little bit, we're going to pray and the prayer teams will be up here. But this... This band, the band's going to play this song again. And as they play this song, I'm going to encourage you to stand and worship with us. And as you're worshiping, maybe if you've got some of those things in your life, you've fixed your eyes on the wrong thing, you just say, God, I'm going to give them to you. Help me to fix my eyes on you. Would you stand with me at this time? We're going to pray. Dear Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've always got the big picture in mind. I think you know, you know everything that's going on in our lives. And I pray if there are people in this room today that have their eyes fixed on the wrong things, that you would draw them to you to lay everything at your feet and say, God, help me to focus on you. Help us worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.